It's Mac with you this morning on the Fraser Coast Hit 101.9, joined by former New South Wales Treasury Secretary, Professor Percy Allen. Hello. Hi, hi. How's Sydney going at the moment? It's pretty well shut down. Yep, pretty quiet. You yourself, um, how do you think the current financial situation looks? Well, at present, it's pretty awful. Mm. Um, the economy is in shutdown for good reasons. They're, they're health reasons, and um, we're likely to have the worst downturn since the Great Depression. If it wasn't for the rescue measures, it would probably be as bad as the Depression because if you think about it, I think there's something like um, 700,000 people mm. uh, who are on Job Seeker, and there's about 1.4 million on Job Keeper, and they both add up to about 27% of the workforce. Now, in the Great Depression, I think unemployment got up to about 30%. So, without unemployment benefits and um, uh, Job Keeper, the number of people who are sitting at home rather than working is almost of a comparable size. Mm. It's not going to be as bad as then because we have rescue measures, but nevertheless, it is severe. What are the lessons that we can learn from the past? I mean, the first lesson, and Keynes taught us that, was that when you get a depression, don't tighten your budget. In fact, spend more to compensate for the downturn in private spending. And that's clearly what governments are doing around the world. Also for central banks, not to tighten money, but to loosen it, which they're doing. So having loose what's called fiscal policies, referring to budgetary policies, and loose monetary policies, referring to central bank policies, is essential. And that's essentially what happened in the global financial crisis, and it's happening again. They say that one of the big problems with us back in the Depression was that we were so dependent on the sheep's back and also wheat, but New Zealand seemed to fare better because they were diversified. Do you think we're diversified enough after things start opening to keep ourselves going? Well, we're certainly, I think, more diversified than we were then, mm. where we were very dependent on agriculture. Agriculture is still very important. Important. And of course, mining is now more important. Yep. And uh, both of them are very heavily dependent on China. A lot depends on China. China is the elephant in the room. Uh, it's the biggest issue in terms of our future prosperity and stability. The Chinese ambassador was reported as saying, look, if we call for an international inquiry into the pandemic, China may well be recommending to its tourists and its students not to come to Australia or that it's not a friendly place for them. When they did that last to Korea, it really knocked their economy around. So they don't have to actually say don't do something. All they have to say is the place is unfriendly and the Chinese people then think twice about coming here either for studies or for tourism. So China is very important. But the Chinese have reopened their economy. They have succeeded in, um, they say, in defeating this pandemic, even though it started in that country. We'll wait and see whether that's true or not. But they must be very confident because if they've got this wrong, then the Communist Party, um, which is a dictatorship, as you know, in China, Mm. could well... uh, be challenged by the people if there was suddenly a second wave pandemic. So they're fairly confident they've got this under control. So uh, I was reading an article uh, written by John Hewson, former Liberal opposition leader. His words, the way he was talking about it, was he was concerned with job keeper and job seeker and how long that sort of thing was sustainable. Do you think that there's a chance that maybe in September that they cut our funding? First of all, it is only a six-month rescue mission, right? Yeah. On the other hand, I don't think um, Job Seeker is going to go back to the old unemployment benefit, which was half that. 
new start. I don't think it's going to go back to the half the level of before because I think there'd be public outrage and it was always too low at that level. Mm. Uh, the question is whether other things like free uh, childcare, uh, whether that will continue to remain free or whether it will go back again. A lot of working mothers are going to say, well, we want to keep that. So it may be difficult winding some of these measures back. At the same time, Australia's great strength was that it did get its finances under control. It got back to a balanced budget. Mm. Uh, and so it was able to withstand this shock better. In other words, our government debt, GDP, is much lower than for other countries. The gross debt is around, I think, 40% roughly, whereas the average for um, other OECD countries is around 120%. So it's about a third that of other rich countries. And it's going to, of course, be much higher in the future mm. as talk of, uh, you know, rising to $166 trillion worldwide. The fact that we had lower debt than the re- much of the rest of the world and we had a balanced budget stood us in good stead. And the government will hope to try to get that back again in, in future. And that makes sense. The only problem is that um, the cost of this, the debt overhang from this is going to be enormous. And I've written elsewhere that maybe the easiest solution for the next three years is simply print the money because it's a once in a century opportunity to do that while the private sector is depressed and it wouldn't be inflationary. But of course, after that period, if the economy got back to full capacity, it would be necessary to stop such uh, money printing or money creation, if you like, and uh, start raising taxes or doing other things for balancing the budget. Professor, I read an article you wrote back in July last year and you were referring to MIFO notes uh, back then. Yeah, I was referring to the German experience and I wrote another piece very recently uh, last week uh, in the Financial Review as well and, and then sent a letter in as well. Germany's an awful precedent because of Hitler and mm. all of that. But the reality is we have to go back to the 1930s, the Great Depression, as the precedent for what's happening now, as this is the worst economic downturn since then. Mm. We have to ask which country in the 1930s got it right and who got it wrong. Yeah. And uh, Keynes published his general theory saying, stimulate, don't uh, tighten the belt in 1936. But before that, uh, actually even before Hitler came to power, a year before Hitler came back to power, a centrist chancellor at the time introduced a mechanism for printing money to pay for public works. And when Hitler came to power, although he was opposed to it originally, he embraced it as his own and then expanded it dramatically and built autobahns. He funded the Olympics in 1936. And... Germany restored its prosperity very quickly. By 1933, a year later, its economy was growing at over 6% and it continued growing at over 6% right up till the Second World War. In fact, it was so successful, it made Hitler so popular that he was able to launch his um, crazy ambitions to have a world war and uh, to kill Jews and gypsies and Poles. And, and the German public largely turned a blind eye because they saw the rest of the world in the depression while they were prospering. Yeah. This is an awful precedent. But we, sure. we, we've got to look past Hitler and say, why did it work? And it worked because the government, instead of running up huge debts, simply went to its central bank. And it was a complicated mechanism I explained, and I won't bore your listeners with it, but the fact that they printed that money left the government without any debt when they got out of it. The important thing is when you get out of it, not to continue printing money because yes. that would be hyperinflationary. That's where Germany did get in trouble at one stage, right? Well, they did, but that was in the early 1920s. Uh, after the First World War, they had hyperinflation. Mm. 
and uh, it was you know it got up to million percent inflation and uh, prices were doubling every day and that was because the government had printed money they'd started doing it during the war mm. but the allies had uh, required them to make war reparations to pay for the war yep. and they were very it was like a heavy fine on germany and they didn't have the wealth at that stage to do it. Their economy was in ruins. Mm. And so the only way they thought they could do it was to print money and to repay the allies because they had to repay effectively in gold or currencies tied to gold. The more money they printed to buy currencies to repay the allies, uh, the more it flowed over into domestic inflation. Then on top of it, the French at the time were annoyed that they were behind in their payments. So they invaded Germany and took the Ruhr Valley, which was their industrial and mining base. So they had even less money. And so they printed even you know less wealth. And so they printed even mm. more money, which only exacerbated the uh, hyperinflation. So the lesson of all this is if you are going to print money, do it in the depths of a recession uh, while your economy is still strong, as Australia's is still, if if we don't impair it too heavily. Uh, Don't do it after a war when your economy is ruined and when you have to make reparations and uh, you can't really pay the bill because if money runs ahead of the supply of goods, then prices will rise astronomically. Professor, do you think we need to start firing up Australian industry, like um, restarting things like Holden and, and that no, sort of thing? No. No. no, look, uh, Australia has to compete in the world. If we go back to a protectionist regime, we will become impoverished. The lesson after the Second World War, and particularly in Australia, was where we brought in very high tariffs. It worked for a while, but we now live in a very global world where we have to export, and we are big exporters. We export iron ore, as you know, mm. uh, coal and other minerals, and we export agricultural products, wool, wheat, and so forth. At the same time, we are very heavy importers, particularly of consumer goods. That's not to say that we shouldn't secure some of our supply lines for medical products and things that we've found this time that we're short of. We should also build up our stockpile of oil. Mm. But it's a sort of romantic notion to go back and say, we're going to build cars, we're going to make all these things, because frankly, we're not that good at it compared to other countries. And if we start subsidizing these industries, we will have to take it off health, education, our pension system and so forth, because there is just not enough money to pay for it all. We've got an aging population that needs more aged care, that needs more pensions, and that needs more social security and health care. So we, we, we don't have enough money for everything. So industry should stand on its own feet. And the reality is there's a lot of industries that can compete. We're strong in tourism. We're strong in education. And the money these days is in higher value goods where we uh, use our ideas and our innovation and concepts. So if we get into manufacturing, it's more likely to be in the design of something, even if it's made overseas, because most of the value is in the design of it and its branding and its marketing than the making of it. Manufacturing in industries in Bangladesh, India, and less so in China because their wages are going up, can make something out of plastic or steel. But if the idea is conceived in Australia, about 80-90% of the value of it is in the idea and in the patent. And that's mm. why intellectual properties become so important. So we just need to make our people smarter. That's the goal, hey? We sure do. Um, we've got to be smarter at everything. And we've got really smart at tourism. We've got really smart in the education sector. Asians want to come here and have their education. And we earn a lot of money from it. Fortunately, we can't do it through COVID. Yeah, that's right. And um, with all that's going on with the oil wars at the moment, you've got America in the last few years have been doing their shale oil. Uh, they've started supporting yep. themselves. They've with had a the, boom. 
Massive boom. Um, they were starting to export it. And World's biggest oil producer. It's amazing. Yeah. It's amazing how it's worked. But uh, unfortunately, it's upset the Saudis and uh, the Russians as well. And it doesn't look like it's doing a good thing for Russia at the moment. Um, the Saudis, apparently, if you uh, have a look at a... Uh, a map from the air. Saudi Arabia is just full of tankers at the moment. They can't store it. Like, there's that mm. much oil. They're, like, basically paying people to take it. Yeah, so the price of oil became negative. Mm. I think a week or two back in the futures, if you took out a futures contract, they paid you to take the oil because they didn't have the storage capacity. They didn't want to dump it in the sea, so they were no. paying people. They were giving it away literally for nothing and then paying them to store it. Unbelievable. Mm. But is that going to affect us with all of our mining sectors? Uh, no, it's a particular problem in oil where there's a, a battle between the Saudis and the Russians. Mm. Uh, they have a cartel, which is like a little monopoly, which is broken down. They used to be able to dictate the price of oil by restricting supply. But the Russians are very heavily dependent on oil, as are the Saudis, and both are in trouble. Uh, as I understand it, the Saudis wanted to constrict it, but the Russians wanted to produce more, and so they had a spat. And at the same time, both of them have an interest in undermining the American oil industry, which is more expensive. It's more expensive still to produce mm. shale oil than Russian or Saudi Arabian oil. So they wanted to keep the price low enough to bankrupt the American oil companies, <laughs> exploiting it from shale. Mm. But in the process of trying to keep it uh, low enough, they got into a spat with each other and made it so low, they're now shooting themselves in the foot. You know, we have natural gas, which we export LNG, yep. and I haven't had a look at the price of that recently. It's no doubt been affected, and it is a really important industry for us, but it is somewhat slightly different to oil itself. It's, uh, mm. it's a different commodity. Uh, one of my friends uh, who, who works in the industry, uh, he was just telling me last week that uh, he was laid off, so he's a consultant for um, gas rigs and things like that. And, uh, was he? Okay. Yeah, yeah he was well, it would be affected. I mean, it would be affected. Look, I, I think this will be a short-term phenomenon yeah. because it's not in the interests of Russia or Saudi Arabia or any of the other oil producers to um, continue to make a loss. They've got to reach an agreement amongst themselves not to overproduce oil. And they've also got to accept that America is now self-sufficient in oil. Mm. It no longer needs Saudi Arabia. And the Saudi Arabians also realized that they were defended by America, America's military, because they were such a vital strategic country. They're yeah. no longer. America doesn't need them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so, um, but even so, it's not in their interest to uh, make the price of oil so low that they bankrupt themselves. Yeah, yeah. It's, even uh, if they're trying to bankrupt American oil companies, that's clearly their aim. But it's a dangerous game because oh, yeah. in flooding the world with oil, they're cutting off their nose to spite their face. Yeah, absolutely. My friend who uh, works in the industry, he said to me that um, the oil industry has seen this a number of times about four years ago. I had a very similar thing happen until mm. I think OPEC, um, yep. the governing body, stepped in and said, guys, break it up. You kids stop fighting. Yeah. Actually, OPEC is pretty much dominated by Saudi Arabia. And uh, my understanding is that the uh, the Russians sort of run the other more non-OPEC group. So it's a battle between mm. these two groups. But at the end of the day, it's a battle between Saudi Arabia and Russia because the dominant producers. Yeah, it's a bit of a mess. But on the other hand, it's in our interest as a consumer for them to shoot themselves in the foot because we're getting very cheap oil, which helps us. On the other hand, it doesn't help our LNG industry. But, yeah, um, yeah. But as consumers, let's enjoy it while it lasts. Oh, yeah. 89.9 cents it was last Monday for well, me. Well, it should be even lower. Really? It should be even lower. If, it, 
if they're giving away oil for nothing, we shouldn't even be paying that. <laughs> <laughs> well, it'd be nice to get a free tank of fuel. <laughs> yeah, where they pay us to put it in the tank so we can store it while we're driving. We could make money. This is great. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> when prices get too low and a situation gets too competitive and you see divergent, mm. one of the producers disappears or others disappear and you end up with a monopoly who then later screws you on the price. Yeah. So you have to be careful. I'm a great believer in competition and keeping businesses honest because every business has one primary aim is to make a profit and it doesn't want competitors because it can make more money the less competition. So competition is very good for consumers. But if it's over competitive, then companies can go broke. And when they go broke, then there's a shortage and prices go through the roof. Professor, I'm looking over the next 12 months for regular Australians like myself, blue collar working Aussies, what would your recommendation be to spend, to save, to invest? Well, at present, Australians have a very high debt ratio. We, our households have, have one of the highest debt ratios to income in the world, mm. if not the highest. So I think Australians are going to need to save more. The, the reason for that is we borrowed a lot for housing. Our housing costs far too much in this country. And so young people are having to borrow right up to the hilt to, to buy a home. Mm. And as a result, our household debt is very high. Our government debt by world standards is pretty low. Our corporate debt is pretty reasonable. The problem is household debt. So I think a lot of households will be more cautious and will save more. A lot of households in Australia don't have enough cash in the bank to see them through for a week, let alone a month. Mm. And so I suspect our household savings will go up. A lot of people who've never experienced a recession, you have to probably be under 45 or 46 yep. to have been through the last recession in 91, 92. You would have been a child when that happened and you probably didn't see it because you wouldn't have been in the workforce. Yeah. So most Australians under 50 have never experienced a hard time. So I would have thought the natural reaction would be we must be better prepared in case it happens again. We're the country in the world that hasn't had a recession for the longest period known in modern history. No other country has not had a recession for almost 30 years. So that, that that's likely to happen. At the same time, um, I hope this COVID, we, we soon find a cure or we get herd immunity or something happens. I think things will start easing up by next month. I noticed today one of the uh, big department stores in Melbourne, the Cinities Emporium, is opening up. So things might soon get back to more normal. A number of things will still be closed because of social distancing, but I think we will now gradually ease out of this. Let's just hope we don't get a second wave because if we do, then like the Spanish flu, we go into a second recession. But let's hope that um, what the government's doing, and I think all the governments in Australia have really been some of the best performers in the world here. We were slow to act, but once our government started acting at federal and state level, I think we're the poster boys and girls of the world, along with New Zealand, in how to handle this. By contrast, I think America's a disaster. They've got a a president who's a clown. He's inciting civil disobedience against the health warnings of his own experts. Mm. The other day, thinking aloud that if people perhaps drink bleach or yeah. disinfectant, that might cure it. He's acting very irresponsibly. Some of the state governors, I think, are being more responsible, but then there are others who are being very cavalier as well. Americans are dividing over this, and their politics is getting noxious, whereas in Australia, I think it's been really heartening that our politicians are 
finally united. Our unions and business and others, Australians are uniting. They realise there's a crisis. And I think we can be very proud of that when we look at the contrast of America, where this is proving a disaster. Thousands of people are dying and they've still got no solution in sight. So I think we can be proud of the fact that Australians have risen to the occasion. But let's hope it soon relaxes so we can get back, if not business as normal, at least to get back so we can revive businesses and people can get back to work and we can live a more normal existence. Absolutely, Professor. So in six months' time when they... um well, they, they said they're going to review or what's going on with JobKeeper, JobSeeker. Say that they did cut everything. What would we see? Like mass poverty? What, what would happen? Would the well, banks start taking I mean, houses? If, if, if the economy starts resuming next month, yep. even if it doesn't get back to full capacity, most people should be able to return to work. And so yep. uh, JobSeeker uh, so job should both fall and also businesses uh, – uh, that are in the job keeper scheme should also be able to uh, relinquish that. So they should be able to phase it out. So if things went well, the whole thing might be able to be phased out in six months. I suspect it will need to go longer. Yep. It may need to go for nine months or a year uh, because I'm not sure the economy is going to snap back that quickly. And I'm sure that if that's the case, the government will act. But of course, it will mean an even greater debt overhang. And I think the fear of a lot of people is a debt overhang means one of two things, either higher taxes or cuts in, in uh, welfare and other essential services. Um, and that'll be the big debate. And that's where I've been saying, well, look, you know, once in a century opportunity, just print the money for this period rather yeah. than increase taxes or cut essential spending. But then stop doing that um, when things do return to normal and the economy has reached full capacity or one would risk hyperinflation. And Professor, just one last question. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. You're welcome. With this debt that we've accumulated, say we don't have a second wave, say that you know things pass along as they seem to be at the moment, um, how long do you think this debt will take to pay off? Well, I'm not sure it ever will be. Um, I mean, I think politicians will take the easiest route and uh, they will sell bonds. They'll run up deficits and debt. And we could see this also. I mean, other countries have done it now for 10 years. Mm. And I suspect uh, over the next 10 years, we're going to see massive deleveraging. In Australia, households are going to start paying down their debt. In America, and but also in Australia and Europe, companies are going to start paying down their debt. And as they do so, governments may have to step into the breach and spend more, even though they're already over-indebted. And they'll do that by running up deficits and debt, unfortunately. Will they have the courage to increase taxes and cut uh, existing spending? I somehow doubt it. I, I suspect the most likely scenario is they're going to continue selling bonds to pay for this. And if the private sector doesn't buy the bonds at low interest rates, they'll sell them to central banks. The central banks will buy the bonds earn the interest on it and return it to the government as dividend payment. Yes, gotcha. That is a lazy route, but I suspect it's the easiest route and there may be no alternative. But it's not a nice sight because for governments to keep getting over and over indebted is not really the solution. It has, you know, dangers uh, down the track. Unless it's held by the central bank and they're simply doing it to create more money to offset a reduction in money by the private sector. But if the private sector was to return to prosperity, that route could not be followed and we would have to rely on economic growth to generate more taxes to pay down the debt. So do you think there's a chance the GST will uh, go up 
Well, the microeconomic reforms that are the most favourite ones are increase the GST more to European levels of around 20%. Yep. And use the revenue to reduce income taxes so as to give people a stronger incentive to work. That's been on the table for quite a while. Politicians have been too afraid to do that because it wouldn't be all that popular with uh, people who largely spend rather than earn. Yeah. The other micro-reform is move away from wage arbitration to uh, individual contracts. Again, that's not all that popular. And the third one, um, of course, is cut business red tape, but that often means, you know, cut in health and safety regulations, yeah. environmental regulations. So that's not that popular either. Some of these micro reforms, I think, will happen already. The fact that a lot of workers are working from home and businesses have had to be more flexible and the unions have accepted it. I think a little bit like returning to Newstart or maybe to completely free uh, childcare, that's maybe not going to happen. Mm-hmm. We're going to see actually deregulation coming about simply because of COVID. It's already happening. Yeah. And winding it back, I think, is going to be difficult. You know, if you look at the other micro-reforms, um, I suspect at some stage, and the New South Wales Treasurer's pushed it, we need to replace stamp duty with uh, a kind of new land tax on homes because it's too difficult for young people to buy a home with this huge stamp duty on it. And if you instead collected the revenue by putting a small tax on every home each year, so when they sold the home and had to rebuy a home, there wouldn't be a huge tax cost. That could also help mobility, particularly as older people want to downsize and buy a new place and younger Mm. people need to buy a home. It means those of us who've been in our home for a long time will probably have to pay more. Well, we'd pay tax each year because we're not buying and selling our homes every seven or eight years. Yeah, Yeah. But these sort of changes can come about, but they're painful. But I don't see them coming about unless we've got a more prosperous economy. I think the crisis can make people think about these things. But in this atmosphere, do you really see a big move towards taking people off the security of award wages if they're already on it? Uh, do you see people accepting a 20% goods and services tax instead of a 10% one? Do you see loosening of health and safety or environmental regulations? I don't think so. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and so uh, this has to be a big debate. But I think because of this shock, a lot of people are prepared to rethink their former positions. Yeah, well, they have to really, don't they? That's, that's where we're at. Someone once said, uh, I think it was Clinton's advisor, um, never waste a good crisis. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> um, does that include Monica Lewinsky? No, we won't go in there. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> now, that crisis almost undid him. Um, <laughs> yeah, 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 it certainly did. So, yes, Mr. Frydenberg has a big job ahead of him, doesn't he, in 2020? Yeah, look, um, you look at the federal government, they've spent 10 years finally balancing the budget, and along comes this what's called a black swan, an, an unexpected event, mm. which has completely knocked it out of the water. Mm. We're now back to deficits and debt bigger than the GFC, you know, 10 years down the drain. We've got to start all over again. It's a bit like you climb Mount Everest and just when you're one foot or a meter before you get to the top, you slip. Yeah. Well, you've got a helicopter, you, and so you get to the bottom with a little bit of injury and they say, well, now reclimb it, but you never quite conquered it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so look, this is Herculean. This is yeah, massive, yeah. but at least we're starting with less debt than other countries. Yeah. 
And I believe we do need to keep debt down and deficits because, in as we know, in the global financial crisis, that was our best safeguard against a major recession at that time. Because in, in a crisis, you need capital. You need the rest of the world to be able to borrow from them because we're net borrowers with the world. You need to be attractive to the rest of the world. And so we don't have a reserve currency like America, which has the US dollar or Japan, the yen or Europe, the euro. The rest of the world doesn't see the Australian dollar as something they want to store like those other currencies. Mm. Um, so we're really on our own here. Uh, we don't belong to those big blocks. And the only way we can survive if we have a shock is to be really strong financially and look attractive to the rest of the world because we can't just get away with uh, just pure money printing and so forth indefinitely like America's doing and Europe's doing and Japan's doing. We have to be more disciplined because when the beauty show is on, yep. in this beauty show, they pick the least ugly, the least ugly. Mm-hmm. And so we have to be the least ugly in a world <laughs> swimming in debt. Former New South Wales Treasury Secretary, Professor Percy Allen, thank you very much for joining me. You're welcome.